Hey, Sound Opinions listeners, if you support us on Patreon, you get to listen to our podcast ad-free on Patreon. listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we're talking with author Fred Goodman, who wrote a great new book on the long history of rock music on film. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. But first, we review some new music from Lizzo, Perfume Genius, and Muna. Where my girls, where my girls Oh, man, that is a little bit of girls, G-R-R-R-L-S, Greg, from Lizzo, her fourth album, the second on a major label, There Is Only One Lizzo, or maybe two. She was born Melissa Jefferson, lived in Detroit until the age of 10 when her family moved to Houston. Growing up there, she listened to a lot of gospel music at home. She took serious classical flute lessons, and uh, she played in the marching band. (laughs) She was also rapping with friends in her middle school and, and high school. Really broke through, though, when she moves to the frigid climate of Minneapolis in the north in 2011. Becomes part of that city's uh, thriving underground hip-hop scene, uh, works a little bit with that guy Prince on Plectrum Electrum, makes guest appearances on all sorts of great hip-hop albums, and then goes to make her second indie album at Boney Vare's uh, studio, right? But it's the breakthrough. It's album number three, the first major label album, Cause I Love You, in 2019 that really puts her on the charts. Juice is a hit single. Tempo, collaboration with Missy Elliott, is another big hit. And Lizzo is suddenly everywhere. To say that people have been eagerly anticipating this album, her second major label album, fourth overall, is uh, is an understatement. What's she been doing? She says right at the beginning of the album, hey, did you miss me? I've been home since 2020. I've been twerking and and making smoothies, it's called healing. If that's all she gave us, I'd love her. I don't want to tip my hand. We'll review the album after we play a track and come back. This is a song called Naked by Lizzo from the album Special on Sound Opinions. I'm naked, love how you look at me naked, come make this body bit of a Philly soul vibe there, the Naked song you from ain't, Lizzo. You ain't kidding. Her new album, Special. She's uh, musically all over the map on this record, as she was with her breakthrough, Cause I Love You, a couple years ago. And then her records prior to that were even more sprawling, the independent yeah. record she did. My problem, if there is one with this record, is similar to what I had with the big commercial breakthrough you know, in 2019. It's that she is hiring the best producers that money can buy. You know, the Mark Ronson the Ricky Reed, the Max Martin, the Benny Blanco, trying to put her in a formula box of mass-produced pop music. But when they want to zig, 
Lizzo wants to zag. She's not going to play by the rules completely. That's the thing that makes her so intriguing to me. Her personality is so big that it can't be contained. She makes it undeniable. I mean, I remember being in a Uber van three years ago and a bunch of strangers, <laughs> like eight people in this van listening to the radio and a Lizzo song comes on and all of a sudden there's a spontaneous sing-along yeah. of all these people from different parts of the country. I'm curious what you were doing in an Uber van, but okay. Long story, but the point is Lizzo's music is connecting with a wide array yeah. of people. Which is what pop music is supposed to and, do. And that's exactly what she's doing. And she's putting a little twist to it on girls when she takes that, one of the most misogynist of Beastie Boys songs and turns yeah. it into a female empowerment anthem, yeah. you know? That's something that she can do. When Lizzo can take a Coldplay song, yeah. And make it cool. <laughs> That's know? a tall order. She's yeah. got a song called Coldplay, and you go, yeah. "Oh my God, what is this going to be?" And she, you know, she sort of does a kind of a twisted sample of Yellow. Uh, yeah. I was with somebody, and I was just looking at the stars, and I was with them, and I was singing Yellow. And, 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 and they're do and they're slow dancing together in this kind of beautiful scene that yeah. you know sort of caps the album. In about damn time, she's talking about I'm coming out tonight, celebratory, double meaning. She's not just singing about gay people coming out. She's She's right. thinking about everybody's welcome to this party. That's what uh, everybody's gay is about. That the idea that the dance floor is a place to celebrate together. We're unified here. We may be disparate. We may be misfits everywhere else. But here, we're one. Dance the And I have to say that as saccharine and cheesy as some of that may sound, her personality overrides all quibbles that I have with this record. It's danceable, it's up-tempo, it's a unifying message, a powerful message, a self-empowering yes. message. It sort of feels like a record that's celebrating coming out of this period of the last two and a half years that have been really rough and, yeah. and, and, and saying, we're going to get through this. Listen, if you can't find joy while listening to special, I don't believe you love music. <laughs> you know, granted, as, as a big person, Lizzo calls herself proudly a big girl, to say uh, body acceptance and sexiness, as in naked, you know, is, is not exclusive to uh, supermodels. I'm predisposed to love that to begin with, but the mix of 70s disco, Old school, Gloria Gaynor, right? 80s house music, Greg, something you and I love so deeply, as well as 80s synth pop, right? And then everything else and the kitchen sink in here. Yeah, Lizzo can be cheesy. I think everybody's gay just skirts that line of cheese when she sings, it's your birthday, girl, because you looking like a present. I was like, <laughs> oh, really? All right, but I'm going to give it to her because it's delivered with such passion and enthusiasm mm -hmm. and, uh, and such a great musical setting. I haven't told you I'm going to ask you about this. But I want to ask you about this. I am a little disturbed by Lizzo's frequent use of the B word. Now, to her, it is uh, reclaiming what could be an mm. insult and a horrible slur that uh, is used all too often in, in the world of toxic masculinity to put women down. She is saying it's it's about strong girls, right? But she does that with the word G-R-R-L-S in the track that we bumped with. Right. And as a father of a daughter, you, the father of two daughters, as a 
professor, all right, of many men, women, and gender non-binary student. It just bothers me. Yeah. It's like, Lizzo, you're better than that. Why do you drop that well, word so often? You know, I hate to pin role model on any artist. No, you know, I know. Like you can't, I know. You know, you can't be all things to all people. You but she's carved out that role for herself. You know, I think the way she sings it, how she sings it, who she sings it to is not meant to be as a put down. I know words can seep into the culture for the wrong reasons. Yeah. But I'm, I'm not going to hold her. You know, again, I don't have a huge problem with this particular usage of it and the context in which she is using it. Yeah. I think context in all those songs is, is really important. So, yes, you're coming down on the side that this is a hell of a record, though. Yeah. Think, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I love it. Shoulder up That's a track called Pop Song from the new perfume genius record Ugly Season, the sixth studio album since 2010 from uh, Michael Hadrius, a.k.a. Perfume Genius, a, uh, a bedroom artist whose early recordings got critical acclaim. He started seeping things out there in 2010, and next thing you know, getting rave reviews. Slowly expanded the palette in collaboration with his longtime collaborator, Alan Weifels, and that third album, Too Bright, co-produced by Adrian Utley of Portishead. Mm. Big breakthrough. A lot of audience expanded exponentially, and each record since then has received uh, massive notices. The last Perfume Genius record sent my heart on fire immediately. That was an indie rock cinematic event of 2020. (laughs) Uh, Production and guitar from Blake Mills, Pino Palladino on bass, Jim Keltner on drums. Now we have a new record from Perfume Genius called Ugly Season. We're going to talk about it in a second, but let me just say that this was originally composed as a musical accompaniment for a dance piece, The Sun Still Burns Here by Kate Wallach, and uh, now has been repurposed uh, and expanded in the studio with Weifels and Blake Mills into what you're going to hear now. Here's a track from it. It is called Hellbent from the new Perfume Genius record Ugly Season on Sound Opinions. That is Hellbent from Perfume Genius, the new album, Ugly Season. It is, Greg, a uh, dark and twisty and somewhat goth and, indeed, ugly album at times. There are also moments of real uh, beauty. You know, I applaud Hadrius's uh, fearlessness in talking about his sexuality, his struggle with Crohn's disease, domestic abuse, uh, the dangers faced by gay men in our society. I applaud all that. I just don't like listening to it. (laughs) This album gives me hives. I am sorry. I was struggling with this. We had a, a long lead time before we taped this review. So I was listening in depth over and over and over for three weeks and struggling to enunciate my problems with it. I keep seeing, I usually don't read reviews before we review something, but I kept seeing, uh, trying to make sense of uh, Ugly Season, I kept seeing it compared to Bjork. I don't hear that. I think the comparison is Diamanda Galas, <laughs> especially yeah. the darkness on this record, right? Now, the theatricality, the use of opera-style vocals, the dark storm und drang of the music, right? Diamanda's an expert at that. There's also a sensuality, and, uh, and as a woman singing uh, these songs of 
threat and desire. Uh, I just prefer her a million times over. To me, Perfume Genius is overwrought. It's pretentious. It's super heavy. Maybe I'd understand it better if it was paired with that dance piece, The Sun Still Burns Here, but I don't do dance. What am I missing, brother? Why do I so dislike this album? Well... I understand what you're going for on the Diamanda Galas uh, comparison, although Diamanda, her voice is central to it. I mean, yep. it's the main instrument on her She's records. a virtuosic singer. And she uses her voice in a way that's just unlike any other artist in the world. Hadrius, on the other hand, he's burying his vocals. For the first time on his records, this is the record where the confessional lyrics are subsumed by the music. The music yeah. itself is the thing here. And it's compositionally uh, astute and beautiful. It's not song-oriented record at all. It's mm-hmm. not. These are not pop ditties meant to be played on the radio. This is a record that is meant to be sort of immersed in. I found it just staggeringly beautiful and disturbing and really beautifully done. I mean, he and Weifels and Blake Mills, the three of them, you know, what they've done here is just, it's really stunning, I think. Pop song, kind of, you know, with quote marks, yeah, right? Yeah. But it, it is the, the most beautiful song on the record, those falsetto vocals floating over the top of the instrumentation. Again, you know, really difficult to make out what he's singing about, but that's not the point. You're right about the whole idea. It should have been, might have been better paired with the dance pieces, right? Yeah, because there's also a short film somewhere in this batch of releases. Right. But the second half of the record, it, I think it's really, that's the peak for me. The, that Eye in the Wall song, you as a psychedelic uh, scholar, yeah. uh, that song, that nearly nine minutes of this unfolding psychedelic yeah. drama. I mean, I could see Can or somebody like that doing something like this. I agree. I, I like moments of this, but it, they only aggravate me because then the other moments come up and I'm just like, well, oh, I'm breaking out again. And then that song Hellbent that I just played, that rhythm that sounds like a helicopter. I mean, it's yeah. just like increasingly agitated, the, the screaming guitar and saxophone that come in at the end. Yeah, but you know, you know I love that stuff. You know I think it's also... just really interesting stuff that keeps unfolding. It's never predictable. It's surprising. You know it's... who's also doing this, a very similar thing better, I think. Is Trent Reznor and Atticus Finch well, in yeah, their that's soundtrack? Good, that's probably music. a better comparison in terms of what what's what's happening here. But I mean, you know, Perfume Genius is just uh, I come and go on his music. I think this is my favorite record that he's made. All right, I may have to listen to it one more time. So that's what we thought of these new albums by Lizzo and Perfume Genius. And now we want to hear from you. Leave us a voice message with your opinions on our website, soundopinions.org. Coming up, we're going to share our thoughts on the latest Muna album and talk with writer and author Fred Goodman about rock music on film. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is a song called Silk Chiffon from the new self-titled album by Muna, M-U-N-A. 
We played it before, Greg, on Sound Opinions from uh, our last intern, uh, Mary. And uh, I first heard of Muna, in fact, from students in my class who'd gone to see them, and they were just, they were worshipful of this act. These three young artists, these great musicians, Katie Gavin, Josette Maskin, and Naomi McPherson, who came together uh, as a trio in college at the University of Southern California, began uh, working uh, as a group in 2013, two guitarists and uh, Gavin on synth, bass, and vocals. Uh, All three members identify as gay, and McPherson is non-binary. They have never wanted, however, to be pigeonholed as a, quote-unquote, their words, queer band, but the messages that they send out to young people who are coming into their own sexuality, I've seen firsthand the joy of, of students uh, coming back from seeing them live. Mm-hmm. They, they were one of those bands, uh, you know, like in the jam band world, right. that built their reputation live, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and then the industry had to pay attention. Why are these shows selling out with such rapturous fans? So, you know, the last album was released on a uh, major label, Muna Saves the World, and uh, they did not like the way they were being pigeonholed into one thing uh, by the major label industry. So for this, their third studio album always uh, signifies a a new beginning when a group uh, self-titles its album with the name of the band, right? So for this album, Muna, they have uh, gotten together with the uh, indie pop singer-songwriter great Phoebe Bridgers and signed to her Saddest Factory Records label. Now here comes the record. Let's play a song from it. We'll come back and give our reviews. This is called What I Want by Muna from the album Muna. When I go out again, I'm gonna drink a lot. I'm gonna take a shot, cause that's just what I want. Katie Gavin, Josette Maskin, and Naomi McPherson, the three artists who form Muna, and that, that is a track called What I Want from their self-titled third studio album. They, they were on a major label, now yeah. they're on an indie, but they've made their most major label sounding record in terms of the fact that they are embracing pop music incredibly radio friendly to the extent that radio exists anymore right. uh three songwriters they write all their own songs self-produced i thought that was really important they, they yeah. are a self-contained entity no one's going to tell these people what to do no. with their music they are very much a self-driven enterprise and as you said the live performance stuff was where they built their audience so it's not like some manufactured thing even though they're dabbling in the pop music waters now um they're doing some great things with the pop music formula i i hear you know it's interesting like in that song runners high i hear a little bit of crew love from the weekend and drake right yeah yeah yeah, a little bit of that drum the drum sound there kind of girl reminds me of a track that could have fit on a casey musgraves record Mm. in fact that's i think that may be why casey invited them on uh on tour with her yeah to open right I'm the kind 
and they, there's a little bit of auto tune here and there, but you know what these songs are saying and how they're saying it is is so important. That track we just played of "What I Want" I think really sums up what this record's about. Mm-hmm. I've spent way too, too, too many years not knowing what what I wanted. I'm gonna make up for it all at once. Yeah, you know, coming out in a celebratory fashion. So the record is up tempo. It's talking about you know issues of growing up, understanding yourself, declaring it to the world, free and unfettered, and and celebrating that the triumph of that celebrating yourself. Um, Again, completely self-contained entity, and I can totally understand why they're translating to a broad audience. You know, it's interesting. We had the record with Lizzo and now this Muna record. Oh, yeah. And they're all about inclusivity. Yes. You know, in, everybody's welcome here. We're, you, do, you do not have to be a uh, self-proclaimed big girl right. uh, or much less a black woman. I, I don't want to be presumptuous, Mr. Cott, but neither <laughs> you nor I are, are gay, uh, lesbian. We're not women. <laughs> all right. right. Um, I don't think you have to be to relate to the energy, the enthusiasm, the passion of daring to be 100% yourself. Um, And I think, I I don't think that's minimizing Muna at all or minimizing the power of their uh, message of non-binary and alternate sexuality. Um, I I think they appreciate that. As as I said, they do not want to be a quote-unquote queer band. They want to be Robin. Mm -hmm. And I think musically, (laughs) um, there's a lot of that kind of... um, Taking from 70s disco and completely making it current like it was recorded tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You know, this is inventive music. This is inspiring music. It's empowering music. And I'll repeat, you know, it's going to become a cliche. If you can't listen to Muna by Muna and find joy, I don't think you really like music. It's like Lizzo, right? (laughs) I could live for the rest of 2022 with just Lizzo and Muna. That's right. Put that on your stereo and crank it up. So that's what we thought of the new album from Muna. And as always, leave us a voice message with your thoughts at soundopinions.org. Next, we're talking with a colleague, fellow rock journalist and author Fred Goodman. You got it, Greg. In addition to being a former editor and writer for Rolling Stone, Fred has uh, appeared in the New York Times and he's written several books. His latest is Rock on Film, the movies that rocked the big screen. We wanted to chat with him about the history of music on film, ranging from uh, narrative movies like The Beatles' Hard Day's Night to riveting documentaries like uh, Gimme Shelter or Metallica's Some Kind of Monster. Fred, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks a lot, guys. Small topic in this book, Fred. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, boy. Fred, you've written a lot of books, ambitious books, in-depth studies of uh, various aspects of the music world. This is a gigantic undertaking. And at the same time, doing a little bit of research, there's not a whole lot of literature out there on rock in movies. I guess you saw The Void and said, somebody's got to fill this. That was kind of the deal. You know, the last one I remember, Marshall Crenshaw wrote one about 25, 30 years ago. And it's been out of print a really long time. And in fact, there was another book called Rock on Film like 40 years ago. These books, you know, they've always interested me, and I assume other people too. So I'm kind of surprised that, you know, it's not something that's just there, you know, that you could reach to. So 
that was the idea. I thought about it for a couple of years and just went about, you know, what book would I read? You're absolutely right. I mean, it's a proliferating industry. I mean, it's gone from, you know, a handful of movies. I remember like the Buddy Holly movie coming out, for example, the biopic, things like that. But it seemed to be few and far between. But it seemed like in the last 20 years, especially, the floodgates have opened and there's a lot more of them. And almost every band has some sort of a film representing itself some bands have one for like every tour like metallic <laughs> yeah. i think is filmed every tour and put out a dvd yeah, on and it. how many rolling stone concert films exactly i mean they, they did one almost every tour i think there's two reasons for the floodgates one is you can now make your own movies right and we've certainly seen that you know on local scenes on punk i mean if you go looking around you'll see that you know obviously and, and i'm sure greg is very aware of this from the stuff you do with film it's like every local scene whether it's the southern california punk scene washington D.C., Atlanta, Nashville, I mean, on and on and on. There's films about so many local scenes that people are able to make, or films about producers, about sidemen, about the woman who ran the Beatles fan club, you know? I mean, it just gets down to this sort of microscopic level because you can do it. And then on the other side, you have bands that, like, once upon a time, the Rolling Stones went out on tour when they had an album, right? But an album is not an event anymore that you can tour on. So I think people get involved in all kinds of projects, including these band perspectives. I mean, a lot of bands will, will hire a documentarian and do a sort of overview film you know, and tour on that. So there's been a real flood for two reasons. I mean, part of it being you can't make records anymore and tour on them. And the other side of it is that people can easily make these films now. You see it start with D.A. Pennebaker, you know, when he's inventing little cameras that he can carry with him and be unobtrusive. It's kind of just blossomed where, like, anybody can do that now. Anybody with a phone in their pocket. Well, and, and speaking of Pennebaker, you really dress the influence of Don't Look Back. I think it's an enormous film. And, and, you know, when I started thinking about, well, how do I think about this stuff, it really did occur to me that, like, Adam and Eve, you know, are a hard day's night and don't look back for all these films. You know, mm. all the DNA of everything that comes after, you know, the stuff that comes before it, you know, Alan Freed films or, or The Girl Can't Help It or those kinds of things. They're not done from the inside. That's kind of the thing. Those are the films that are done from the inside and everybody kind of picks up on it after that. Hannah Baker, I was kind of surprised. I mean, I didn't realize until I did this project that he had gotten an honorary Oscar. His importance to the industry has been recognized you know, even beyond our little interest. That film still astonishes me because there was so much access given. Dylan doesn't necessarily come off that well. Jim and I are, were friends with Roger Ebert, and we did one of the last interviews with him in which we asked him about the fact that he didn't like... He hated uh, that movie. Don't look back, because <laughs> Dylan came off as such a jerk. Who threw that glass in the street? Now, who did it? I don't care who did it, man. I just want to know who did it. And... At the same time, it came out. Dylan probably could have sued him and said, you know, I don't want you to put this out. And he let it come out. It's amazing that we have that document now. You see, after that, Dylan doesn't give that kind of access, whether it's once bitten, twice shy. And, you know, years ago when I had interviewed Pennebaker for another project, he mentioned to me that Dylan tried to buy the film from him. Had basically said to him, ah, you know, it's filled with all sorts of people nobody cares about, like Joan Baez and Donovan, people that don't matter anymore. You know, just tell me the film, you know? <laughs> Maybe he wanted to do with it what the Stones did with the uh, Blank Sucker Blues, yeah. What was so influential, if Don't Look Back is cinema verite in the music world at its finest, what was so influential about A Hard Day's Night? It's been a hard day's night And I've been working like a dog It's been a hard day's night I should be sure
Well, I think for the first time, there's a sort of there there. If you weren't already a fan of the Beatles, you didn't expect it. And I think the film was a real eye-opener. Because prior to that, you know, they're knocking out these films. And even A Hard Day's Night is knocked out, you know, in 90 days because we don't know if the Beatles are still going to be popular, right? Right, right. You know, we all have seen the Melody Maker articles about, can you believe the Rolling Stones are still going strong after a year? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> even the Stones, you know, I mean, Mick Jagger's famous thing about it. He's not going to be wiggling his ass when he's 40. You know, no one conceived of this. That's sort of the first opening of that aperture that this is a state of mind. This is here to stay. And that redefines it. And I particularly was struck by things like the film Privilege, which is an obscure film made by the English filmmaker Peter Watkins. People are, are looking at possibilities in rock and roll that they hadn't seen before, that they can express things about politics, that they can talk about what's going on in a way that they hadn't before or that they hadn't think they could with rock and roll as the subject. It captured something essential about the band because one thing always stuck with me, you know, interviewing George Martin back in the day. He, he said, you know, he wasn't that impressed with the music, but the camaraderie and the humor really got to him. Like, these guys are a level above. They just have this interaction that is incredible. And that film kind of got that. It is a surprise. I mean, even when you watch it today, my favorite scene in that film is that interchange between John Lennon, you know, and one of the chorus girls in the back stairwell. Just this kind of sense of timing and humor and self-awareness that's completely unexpected. One thing that really stuck with me in your book, Fred, was that there was a line about something to the effect of the music got better and more sophisticated in, in many ways, and the movies did too. It's almost like the movies had to keep up with the music. The music can be this ambitious, we can make the films this ambitious as well. You know, the music takes so much into its DNA as it goes along. I point out in one point in the book that it's like, Good Golly, Miss Molly, and Like a Rolling Stone are both great rock and roll singles. Beyond that, it's almost impossible to say what they have in common. I mean, the world is so huge all of a sudden. And anything, whether, whether it's going to be sexual issues, social issues, racial issues, gender, I mean, whatever the topic becomes in rock and roll, it's going to come out, you know, as well. I mean, we certainly... When you go through all these phases of the music and the trends of whether it's glitter or disco or metal or whatever, I mean, the difference between what Penelope Spheris is capturing and the song remains the same is gigantic. I'm glad to see uh, Penelope. Uh, you chat with her in the book. There's a couple of conversations with directors, Cameron Crowe, Penelope uh, Spiris. Uh, both have been on the show. They're just such wonderful music fans. But uh, I want to go back to what you said about the Watkins film. You are not only focusing on the big landmark movies of uh, musical history, but you celebrate a lot of obscure films. I, I love that, ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous Stains ranks very high. <laughs> on your list. <laughs> I love that movie. You're fired. I need the money. Corinne Burns, what are you going to do? My name is not Corinne Burns. Oh, what is it? It's third degree Burns. I'm the lead singer and manager for the Stains. That's a great movie. So 98% of our listeners have no idea what that is. Tell us what it is, Fred. Well, it was a small-budget movie that was made. It was written by the screenwriter who had also written Slapshot and Coming Home. And she had seen uh, the Ramones and sort of, you know, had her come-to-Jesus moment at a Ramones concert. But also, you know, wanted to write about women in rock and roll, so she dreamed up 
this story about sisters and their cousin who start a punk band in Pennsylvania to sort of bust out of this life. And it's incredible. And one of the great things, of course, is the music is so good in that film, too. You've got this band made up of former members of The Clash and the Sex Pistols. And Ray Winstone, is, is, who is an unknown at that point, was in it as well. And it's just like Diane Lane is a teenager. It's just kind of an incredible performance all around and shot for nothing in Canada, I believe, not Pennsylvania. It's a wonderful film and a film that didn't find an audience when it came out, which is something you come to over and over in this stuff that, you know, films get made and maybe they won't find their audience for a long time. This one was one that got picked up, you know, on, ca on early cable TV and became a, sort of an underground sensation. And it wasn't released on video until like 20 years after its release. Like we were talking about earlier, there's so many of these films and, and there's so many that are great that nobody will know about. They get farmed out to VHS or DVD, whatever the format of the moment was, and, and you know, you're lucky you find them on a, on a shelf somewhere in a, in a used bookstore or something like that, you know. I wanted to write about, you know, there's a David Essex film, That'll Be the Day, which is a very good film, and I, what I really wanted to see was there's a follow-up called Starstruck, which is impossible to view. It may be easier to get a hold of a copy in England, I'm not sure. You know, among all the collectors and people I knew, I could never find a copy of Starstruck. And you, you yeah. feel like, gee, I can't even see this film to decide whether I want to do it. I, should I even mention it in passing? But it's supposed to be a wonderful film. It's like the Holy Grail, right? Uh, when we, we would search for out-of-print records in, in, in shelves. In it's those almost things. refreshing, though, in this day and age <laughs> yeah. of digital ubiquity that you can't find something. Not even on YouTube, huh? Try and find a copy of Let It Be. That was very consciously kept off the market. I don't believe it was ever on disc. If you want to see the original Let It Be, you got to dig up a VHS somewhere. Right. And, and it's also not easy to find a copy of the concert for Bangladesh. Coming up, we conclude our conversation with Fred Goodman. We talk about what makes a truly good music documentary and why Fred felt it was important to include fan-favorite music films like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which I love, in his book. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. And we are back. This week, we're talking with author Fred Goodman about his book, Rock on Film. Let's jump back into the conversation. The book basically sticks to 50 films, but you obviously give yourself a lot of leeway because there's little sidebars throughout. But if there was one sort of obscure rock movie that you think everybody should watch, uh, we've mentioned a couple here, but is there anyone in particular that you think, hey, this movie needs a lot more love than it's ever gotten? Even though it's not that obscure, I really love I'm Not There, and that's an argument every, you know, half the time when you mention that film. I also think some of the documentaries, Mistaken for Strangers, the film about the National, if you haven't mm -hmm. seen that, that's a really wonderful film made by the brother of the lead singer of the Nationals. And, and also Beware of Mr. Baker, the film about Ginger Baker. Oh my God, yeah. I was surprised to see that in there, yeah. Really. No one in America knows Dr. Feelgood, you know, but if you see Julian Temple's Oil City Confidential... It's a fantastic rock and roll documentary. Those are interesting choices all, Fred, but in particular, you mentioned the National documentary. What is it about the National film in particular that puts it a cut above the proliferation of other ones? What I love about that film is it's a perspective that I never thought I would see. The brother who is making the film has worked as a roadie for the band, and he has some issues, you know, mental health and personality issues. <laughs> and, and, you know, he can't really hold a job, right? And he's got this brother who's a world-famous rock star. 
And it's really about negotiating this relationship between the two of them. You just need to be careful about not partying. You're, you're not a band member, you're, you're a crew member. I feel, like, I feel like the only reason why he thinks I'm on tour is because I'm your brother. The only reason you are here is because you're my brother. I feel like I'm on the outside of the world looking in. I don't even know what I'm doing here. I think Matt And it's gone. like, wow, I never thought I would see this kind of thing. And, and to me, it works much better than some other things that seem more obvious, just because mm-hmm. it's unexpected. Yeah, when a documentary surprises you and it's not just VH1 behind the music. We got to double back, though, to I'm Not There, Fred. A lot of people don't know about it. Todd Haynes' yeah. really innovative approach to the many sides of Bob Dylan by casting <laughs> many <laughs> actors and actresses, right? Including yeah. women. Including <laughs> Kate Blanchett. You know, you write about Todd being part of the new queer cinema and uh, uh, but this movie being more than that but it is part of it it's kind of part of his entire aesthetic isn't it it really is I mean if you talk about things that are fun to dig up if you look on the internet you will find grainy copies of Todd's Carpenter's film right you know which is (laughs) really something to see I did ask him about that, yeah. I mean, for people who don't know, I think his master's project or something, when he was going to to film school, he made a film about the Carpenters using Barbie and Ken doll. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And and it really is amazing. I mean, it, it, it is completely, in some ways, subversive, and in other ways, very sympathetic. It got sued out of existence because he didn't pay for any of the music. <laughs> uh, but second of all, I think, you know, Richard Carpenter and the Carpenter family just freaked out when they saw it. Fred, three rock critics here talking about, you know, 60 years of, of music movies. We have to throw a few at you. Occasionally, I think you're too kind. Now, as a Pink Floyd super fan, I stood in line three hours to see the <laughs> New York opening of The Wall at the Ziegfeld Theater, right? And, but but that's, I didn't like it then, and now I actively despise it. That's not a good movie. You know, it's really interesting because it's a film on which people are split. It's not a film that I would return to, but there's moments in it that really kind of like stand out. I mean, I really do think that that scene where it like he shaves his body, including his eyebrows. You know, it reminds me of like those surreal moments, like when you're watching a Buñuel film, that just stick in your mind forever. Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> that That's sort of like, okay, you know, they got something here. The film doesn't have any continuity, but it's so interesting. I mean, you talked about Roger Ebert. He loved that movie. And Penelope Spheris told me she loved that movie. So it clicks with people in a way that is kind of surprising. You are very kind, and, and rightly so, because I think it's important. It gets dismissed as camp, but I think it changed so many people's oh, lives. God, yeah. Rocky Horror Picture Show. Well, you know, you're talking about a film that's not near and dear to my heart. But, you know, when you're doing a picture, uh, you know, a, a project like this, you have to think about everybody. The hardest people to please are going to be us. As Cameron Crowe would say, put on the geek hat and talk about it all night. Yeah, I love that he said that to you. And that's exactly what Cameron is. Yeah. Yes. But, you know, for somebody who has a casual thing to it, you know, you have to kind of let people love what they love. It brings up an interesting point because I think Rocky Horror Picture is in a lineage like, you, you know, you talk about Blackboard Jungle being the seminal moment where people jumped out of their chairs and rioted 
when you know Bill Haley in the comments of all people come up and do a song, and 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 then you got Haraki Horror, and then you've got Stop Making Sense. These were all movies that touched audiences to the point where they are participating in what is going on in the screen. They're actually involved in the movie so much they're getting out of their seats and and dancing in the aisles or throwing toast up on the stage because that's the yeah, line of dialogue. They are or whatever. part of the crowd, they're which is exactly it. what a great musical performance does. It's almost like you know the movie version of Becoming a Deadhead. I mean, people you know get involved in this as part of their life where they go every Saturday night to the screening. It becomes a social thing. Just a jump to the left. With your hands on your hips. And the other thing you get at with your book, there's many aspects of it. We need to talk about Woodstock. I know Jim hates that film. I hate Woodstock. I, well, I understand I, that. And I understand why he hates it. And you make a really good point, I think, about the... You know, it's almost like the marketing aspect of that movie was more important than the film itself. Whatever you think about the film, the fact that it took this one-time event and spread it all over the world. Like, there was only like 500,000 people that actually saw Woodstock, but then millions and millions more saw it because of that movie. And that helped sort of mythologize the whole experience for everybody like this was the seminal moment of the 60s and it's been that way ever since because of this as opposed to the actual event and i think i say in there that there were three woodstock the one that happened on stage the one that happened in the crowd and the one that happens on the movie which is you know what is the legend and meaning of, of woodstock it was such an unexpected an enormous moment that i think people spent a long time trying to figure it out like it or not still has this sort of lasting cultural cachet and impact films like rattle and hum bring on the night you know i mean which which are you know they're not bad films but they don't really make a case to be watched these days well you don't want to see larry mullen cry at elvis's gravesite (laughs) i didn't want to see that the first time i i I, see i blocked that part out Two devil's advocate arguments, uh, Fred. Number one, you know, rock films, music films can do a lot to mythologize and gloss over. I always think of La Bamba. You know, Richie Valens was an infinitely more interesting character than we saw on screen, you know, and Mexican-American, and he was kind of scrubbed of his lineage in in large part in the movie, right? Or, you know, uh, you write about the uh, NWA uh, movie, you know, and the misogyny and homophobia, Dr. Dre throwing a female journalist down a flight of stairs, all of that is, is scrubbed out. That's one thing, the mythologizing. And the other thing is, I've heard arguments from some music lovers that video more so, but film as well, deprives us of the infinitely better movies we'd see in our head without marrying them to these images forever. Similar to what I was saying about, like, the hardest person to write for is the guys like us who think about this all the time, because we've already got this book in our head, right? I mean, we know which films we think are great films and and why. I was really impressed, for example, with Taylor Hackford's film about Chuck Berry, because it's one of the few artist-sanctioned films that you will ever see that is not about how triumphantly great this artist is. I mean, it's respectful of Barry, but it shows him as a problematic human being. And, and yeah, you, yeah. you get almost that, like, never, right? 
you're going to get a story of triumph. And what gets done, you know, I, I think we're also moving into an area as we see the you know, multi-part sex pistols, multi-part Pam and Tommy. What gets put up as the official story? Every time you have, you know, an artist involved in a film, you kind of have to figure out, okay, you know, one of the interesting things talking to Taylor Hackford, both about Chuck Berry, but also about working with Ray Charles. He said something interesting. He said, if I had to make the Ray Charles film after he died with his estate, I never could have made it. Why? Well, because they would have wanted a hero's story, you know, and Ray was willing to tell a story that was more nuanced than that when he was here and in charge of the project. And good for Ray. I mean, I have this problem with many rock photographers, too. I just wrote an introduction, Greg, for a, a beautiful photo collection of Marty Perez's work mm -hmm. that's coming out, right? And they see their job as, like, building the rock gods, you know, Mount Rushmore or religious icons. And I always just think, you know, the reality, as you've been praising Don't Look Back, is infinitely more fascinating. That is the thing about oh, Don't Look Back. I mean, it's so adult. It's not just like, boy, look at this great genius artist, which is unfortunately, you know, the vast majority of what's put out. It's much more, what are you looking at? Is this off the cuff or is Bob Dylan handing this up and giving us a load of bunk? And, and that's the wonderful thing about the film. You have to decide. In the same vein, I'm really glad, Fred, that you wrote about some kind of monster because Metallica at that point in its career was widely denigrated. They were coming off the Napster fiasco where they wanted to kill it. You know, this file sharing stuff is all wrong. And the band was breaking up before our very eyes, and they allowed it to happen. I'm still, like, trying to wrap my head around, like, how did they allow that? to get out into the world. I mean, they fully sanctioned that movie. And and here it is. And it's the closest thing to, you know, Gimme Shelter or Don't Look Back uh, since that era, I would say. I don't know. It was interesting to me that that was included because I, don't, I think a lot of people tend to ignore it because, oh, it's Metallica and they're a cliche now. But that is a great movie for maybe all the wrong reasons. I'm glad you feel that way because I totally agree with that. I mean, I think it's a really significant movie. Fred gives you a shout out in the book, Mr. Cod, the Wilco movie. Similar, you know, the, the animosity exploding on screen between Jay Bennett and Jeff Tweedy. Mm. Uh, it's uncomfortable. And yet, I mean, this is life, right? You know, and, and I value artists who are brave enough to show us themselves warts and all. I have to agree with you. I mean, that's the stuff I want to see. Give me danger, as somebody put it. I'm glad you mentioned Standing in the Shadows of Motown about the Funk Brothers, because finally we had something that documented or talked about the importance of that house band at Motown, basically written out of history, not in the liner notes for most Motown records, certainly in the 60s. You didn't even know who played on those records. And finally, somebody made a movie about it. And, and that, that, to me, talks about the power of a great music documentary to, to really shed some light in, in an area that's never been exposed to the vast majority of people. I mean, obviously, you thought highly of the movie. I mean, was it more the gesture or was the execution of the movie equally great? in your mind. I know one of the producers who I met while he was making that film, Alan Slutsky, who had written the book on James Jamerson, then met the other Motown guys. He wanted to make originally a documentary on Jamerson. And, and then, you know, as he was meeting the rest of the Funk Brothers, he saw that there was this broader story to be done. Alan is, is a working musician. He, he like, you know, mm. works in the casinos in Atlantic City and teaches. And he's a really fascinating, lovely guy from Philadelphia. And he literally hocked his instruments to make this movie. He spent eight years, I 
think it was, searching for money wow. for this film. You know, he said to the point where the Funk Brothers, at first they were all on board, and I think after eight years I was like their idiot grandmother up in the attic. <laughs> and mm-hmm. he eventually, you know, found somebody to do it. He talked to everybody in the world, and they made this film, and it was a success. I mean, it's kind of an amazing story, and it's just about a musician appreciating what other musicians did. That's why he could see it. Motown wasn't in the business of doing anything but selling its stars. They don't show you the man behind the curtain. It's all about the artist. That's what every label puts out. And it's a similar thing when you start talking about these films about business, right? Because one one of the things that struck me so much about, you know, the film about Clarence Avant, The Black Godfather, which is a film that I love, but most people don't know about it. It's a fantastic film that really shows how the music business operates And also, you know, what it has meant to be black in the music industry for the last 40 years. And it's a phenomenal thing. When you see most films, if you see Bohemian Rhapsody or whatever, it's going to be that manager was the guy that screwed me or he this or he that. They're usually, you know, sort of cartoon bad guys you know, in in most of these stories. And and the fact is, if there's a good career, there's usually a good manager. So you're saying I'm a complete curmudgeon because I didn't like the Queen biopic and the Elton John biopic, which were gigantic box office hits. And then people would ask me, what did I think? And I go, well, they they screwed up the story. It's it's completely fabricated in parts. And uh, at the same time, they go, but I just... Like the movie. It was it was fun. It was great storytelling. They don't really appeal to me. You'll notice they're not in here. <laughs> yeah. You know, people like them, but they're not really for me. And much of it becomes, what do I have to do? And after that, what do I want to tell people about? Somebody gives you $20 million as a producer, right? <laughs> and you're going to make a movie. What's the great untold story movie to be made in the music world still? Wow, that's a great question. I never even considered it. I like that. You know, I'm really focused on that man behind the curtain story. So I don't know who Mm -hmm. I would tell it about. And I'm always like so interested in stories that are unknown. I have a sort of non-commercial streak. But yeah, $20 million. Okay, that's what I do. I'd I'd make a film about the the artist that no one heard of in my last book, Lassa DeSella. I want to see a great Pink Floyd movie. You know, Sid Barrett into Gilmore, what that was really like. What would you want to see, Greg? Like Oliver Stone's The Doors, which is a dreadful movie, but about Pink Floyd. You know, I was going to say The Velvets, but then Todd Haynes did a pretty good job, I thought. The, the thing about the Todd Haynes movie about the Velvets that I didn't like was that he kind of forgets about the band after John Cale left, you know? So there's like a part two to that movie that two I like. of four I brilliant albums. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then and then just the Lou Reed story. Your book about Lassa de, de Sella had some merit because, I, at least for me, I went out and sought out her music. I go, wow, this is a pretty interesting artist, you know? It was, it was one of those things where you never know what these stories will unveil for you. They maybe open some doors for people who may not have otherwise gone there. And it shows to me how this art form that you're describing in your book has, has matured over, over the 50 years that you're, you're covering. I mean, look, it's now such a broad field. You know, that's the kind of amazing thing about it. We, we've got films by Paul Schrader, or we've got, you know, films that kids made in their room. Well, we've been talking to Fred Goodman, the author of Rock on Film, the latest of many great books the movies that rocked the big screen. Fred, thanks for being on the show. Nice to talk to you guys. Thank you very much for having me.
That wraps up our conversation with Fred Goodman. And as always, we want to hear from you next. What's your favorite example of rock on film? Any kind of music on film. If you want to let us know your opinions, leave a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. Mr. Cott, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, a classic album dissection of, dare I say, the greatest rock album ever made, I'll Make the Case, uh, mm. Fun House by the Stooges. And don't forget to check out our bonus podcast feed for new additions to the Desert Island Jukebox. For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to sound opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo. Our social media consultant is Katie Cott. 